And we're back. How's it going, everyone? Welcome back to Hawksense. I am your host, Alex Nicolau, and this episode we'll be starting a brand new series we're going to call The Comic Code Authority. And in this brand new series based on the government-regulated publishers, we'll be rewriting bad superhero films, mainly by touching on the story itself, and not much of the CGI, the acting, the production quality, etc. But without further ado, we have a great episode for y'all today, because in today's episode, we'll be rewriting Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 3. What made Spider-Man 3 crash and burn the way it did? Spider-Man and Spider-Man 2 were both outstanding films with a fantastic cast of both actors and characters, amazing well thought out stories, menacing villains, awesome action sequences, and spine chilling scores. Some including myself go as far to say that Spider-Man 2 is the greatest comic book film ever. So what made the third movie, which was set to be bigger, better, and include the fan favorite villain Venom, fail so easily? Let's start by identifying the problem. The main criticism is that Sony tried to cram so much into one film, and it became overwhelming, and the story didn't flow the way that it should've. So how do we fix that? After watching Spider-Man 3 over and over and over again this week, I have taken notes on what to keep and take out in the film. The main thing being what Sam Raimi said himself ruined the movie, Venom. Unfortunately, the only reason we saw our favorite Lethal Protector was because Sony forced Sam Raimi to put him in the film. Sam said himself that he had a great story just with the Sandman and New Green Goblin until he told him that Venom needs to be in the story. And that becomes super apparent after watching it as many times as I did. So let's start off by taking Venom out of the picture. However, let's keep the Venom symbiote, as I feel that the black-suited Spider-Man fits the feel of Peter's emotions throughout the film. And instead of the symbiote just happening to land right next to Peter's scooter, which seemed very rushed and very lazy, let's have Dr. Connors bring in a scientist from the Life Foundation to show off the symbiote and somehow escape and bond to Peter, parallel to the genetically modified spider that gives Peter his powers. Once Peter puts on the suit, he does not take it off, and we don't see Venom until Spider-Man 4, where he realizes the damage the suit is causing him and the others. Next, let's talk about the Sandman. The Sandman is honestly a very underrated live-action Spider-Man villain, and I think Thomas Hayden Church has done a fantastic job with this character. However, a lot of fans did not like how they switched Uncle Ben's killer from Dennis Carradine, the one who murders Ben in the comics, to Flint Marco just to give Spider-Man motivation to find him, as it just seems very lazy. I believe that even if police told Peter that Flint Marco helped commit these crimes, he would still be motivated to arrest him. Everything else about the character was fantastic though. His motivation to help his daughter, his regret of hurting the Parker family, and even his design was flawless. But you can tell a lot of his story was cut to make room for Venom, and it's a shame because we didn't see his full potential. The final villain in this film is really questionable because I don't know if I necessarily like him or not. Of course, we're talking about Harry Osborn, aka the new Goblin. For starters, you have this great story that has been going on since the first film. Harry thinks Spider-Man killed his father, and he wants revenge against Spider-Man. Then realizing that Spider-Man is his best friend, he's conflicted, but gets consumed by revenge and becomes the new goblin to avenge his father. This story, in theory, is great. The way it was executed, jumbled in between two other villain origins and everything else, made it seem like a burden. So when it comes to the new goblin, let's start off by changing his name back to Green Goblin and giving him a better and more classic Green Goblin suit. I think the first fight scene between Peter and Harry is fantastic, until it ends with Peter giving Harry the nastiest clothesline of all time, giving Harry memory loss. I think the memory loss was something to make room for more story, once again that story being Venom, 
but let's take out the part where he loses his memory and after their intense battle have Peter lie Harry down on the same couch he put Norman on. Harry wakes up and is still aware of Peter's identity, but he takes his father's advice and goes for his heart in the same way he does in the film. There are also a few smaller details that could be removed from the story to make it feel less packed. The love triangle between Peter, MJ, and Gwen could easily be resolved by removing Gwen Stacy. Bryce Dallas Howard could in fact have been a great Gwen Stacy, but her iteration of the character is nothing like the Gwen we know. I would have liked to see her play a super small role in the film, maybe just as Peter's lab partner, but she just felt forced into the story to drive Eddie Brock's hate towards Peter Parker further and to make MJ feel jealous. And speaking of Eddie Brock, I honestly have no idea what they were thinking when casting Topher Grace as his character. No disrespect to Topher Grace, but he isn't Eddie Brock, nor was this character that he played. I do like the idea of Eddie Brock being introduced, but just as a super small role at the Daily Bugle, something to this extent was not needed whatsoever. Even in comparison to the more recent Venom iterations, Tom Hardy does a great job as Eddie Brock and Venom. Even though the content of his films aren't the greatest, he is consistently the greatest parts of his films because of how true he stays to the Eddie Brock character and how entertaining their relationship is. Also, I think all of us know how annoying Mary Jane was in this film complaining about her acting career, and then when Peter is encouraging her and giving her advice, she just throws it back in his face like he's not out here fighting sand monsters and aliens made out of black goo. Then day after day, not telling Peter the truth about her job, guilt trips him for not being there for her. When at the end of Spider-Man 2, their relationship was perfect. She literally left John Jameson, a world-famous astronaut, at the altar for Peter Parker. I think to change this up, we just gotta make her more understanding of the world around her and notice that her problem could have been resolved so quickly with an honest explanation. Now one of the last things we will change is emo Peter Parker, who I will be calling Bully Maguire. Now Bully Maguire was the product of Peter Parker bonded with the Venom symbiote. While bonded with the symbiote, he was an entitled jerk to everyone, a creep with the ladies, a super violent Spider-Man, and above all, a freak on the dance floor. But here's the thing, they technically got Bully Maguire right. The Venom symbiote amplifies dark physical and mental traits of its hosts, making them live out their darkest desires. Even in the comics, Peter becomes stronger, faster, violent, bitter, and yes, a creep. But in this film, they take it way too far with the dancing, so let's take out that entire jazz club scene and replace it with some super violent black suit Spider-Man stopping criminals. So now that we know what we want from this film, let's break it down. Spider-Man 3 opens up the same as the two previous films. Peter Parker recapping his recent life. Peter Parker, Spider-Man, is seeing his girlfriend Mary Jane Watson make her first appearance on Broadway. Meanwhile, a man from Rikers by the name of Flint Marco escapes prison. As the play finishes, Peter sees Harry and confronts him about their issues. Harry gives Peter the cold shoulder, then Peter heads to MJ's dressing room to talk about her performance. Peter then talks to his Aunt May about marrying MJ. Flint Marco returns home to see a sick daughter, then is back on the run. On the way home, Peter gets attacked by Harry Osborne, the new Green Goblin. The fight ends with Harry getting knocked out by Peter, and Peter lays Harry down on the same couch he lied to the deceased Norman Osborn on. Flint Marco is discovered by police, but falls into a super collider, which turns him into a sand-human hybrid called the Sandman. MJ visits Peter to talk about the bad review on her play, but then Peter has to attend Dr. Connors' class, in which Connors brings a scientist from the Life Foundation to show off a new alien life form that was stuck to the side of John Jameson's ship. As the scientist Carlton Drake gets distracted by Gwen Stacy, asking him for Peter to take a picture of the two, Drake forgets to secure the top of the capsule, and the symbiote escapes and latches onto Peter in the same way that the spider does in the first film. After class, Peter sees an armored vehicle chase with the sandstorm following. He has his first tussle with the Sandman and sees Flint Marco's face for the first time. That night, 
Peter invites MJ out to a fancy dinner, ready to propose to her. Interrupting his plans, Peter gets a call from the NYPD. They tell Peter and Aunt May that Flint Marco, who is an accomplice of Dennis Carradine, Uncle Ben's killer, has escaped from prison. MJ tries to comfort Peter, but Peter is too upset to accept any help. He falls asleep waiting for the police radio to report any sandstorms. And while he does, the Venom symbiote attaches to Peter, and you know how that story goes. The next night, Peter gets a buzz that a sand-like man has robbed another bank. As he takes the black suit to go find Flint, he sees the new Bugle photographer named Eddie Brock taking his picture. Having the black suit making him more aggressive, he tells him off and breaks his camera. Black suit Spidey and Sandman have their first battle under the railroads where Spider-Man thinks he has killed Flint Marco. Back at Osborne Manor, Harry sees his father in the mirror telling him to finish the job and go for his heart. Harry then sets off to find MJ and threatens her to break up with Peter. Peter talks to Harry about the situation, then realizes that it's Harry who has sabotaged their relationship. Peter shows up to Harry's house with a black suit on, and they have their iconic house battle, ending in Harry being defeated once again. While Peter is enjoying his time dancing with the black suit, the Sandman resurfaces and is confronted by the Green Goblin. He asks Flint if he wants to help him catch Spider-Man, and he agrees. Harry, letting his sanity get to him, kidnaps Mary Jane and leaves a voicemail asking if Spider-Man can come out to play. Peter rushes over to Osborne Manor and is attacked by Sandman. Sandman has Spider-Man on the ropes until Sandman knocks his mask off, seeing that it's Peter Parker. He tells Peter what happened to his uncle was an accident and that he was trying to help his daughter. We see Peter struggle to say that he forgives Flint, as the black suit was telling him otherwise. Then the Sandman dusts away. Green Goblin swoops in right as Spider-Man recovers and they battle it out big time. Harry's pumpkin bomb damages the symbiote, leaving Peter weak until he hears MJ screaming coming from the hidden room. He gets back up and delivers a combo similar to the one he gave Norman, puts Harry on his knees once again. Harry tries to use one last trick just as his father did and gets impaled by his own glider. He breaks out of his goblin insanity and says, I'm sorry. And Peter and MJ cry over his body, saddened by the loss of their friend's mind and soul. And that about does it for my iteration of Spider-Man 3. I hope you all enjoyed it, and I hope you all will enjoy this series as we go down the list of bad superhero movies. Thank you all so much for listening, and I'll see you guys next time. Bye.